Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 22, Professional Responsibility. Welcome to the next edition of the Navy JAG Corps podcast series, Professional Responsibility in the Navy JAG Corps. My name is Lieutenant Jim Mossaman, and I am the Professional Responsibility Coordinator at OJAG Code 13. And I'm going to be talking to you today about professional responsibility in general within the JAG Corps. And and we'll talk a little bit about the structure of things. um, And we'll talk a little bit about um, areas to go for help. So... Any conversation about professional responsibility should probably start with, well, okay, you know, what are the governing authorities? And for judge advocates, both uh, Navy JAGs and, and Marine Corps judge advocates, uh, the most on-point document is going to be the JAG Corps PR rules, and that's JAG Instruction 5803.1 ECHO. Now, there are also a number of other uh, relevant regulatory authorities, uh, such as the, the NILSC Manual, the Legal Assistance Manual, the FTJA Manual, and, and each one of those instructions can be found on the JAG Corps' uh, webpage. And then also, each one of us, uh, we probably answer to a, a state bar of some sorts, and so each of our state bars is going to have its own set of PR rules. But the focus today is going to be on the Navy's PR rules, which are based on the uh, the ABA, the American Bar Association's model rules, and are probably going to be pretty similar to your local state bar uh, to, to their rules as well. So one of the things that you see uh, when you take a closer look at the actual JAG Corps PR rules is, first of all, it talks about the structure of the Navy JAG Corps PR program. And so at the top, you have the Judge Advocate General of the Navy, who is in charge of overseeing the provision of legal services within the Navy. And included in that is professional or issues or issues of professional responsibility uh, and the conduct of attorneys making it, keeping it professional, keeping it ethical. Uh, and so as far as the, uh, the carrying out and the, the execution of those rules, uh, that job uh, tends to fall to the rules council, uh, which th- there are three rules council and they are individuals who are, are the JAG's special assistants for the administration of the PR rules. So who are they? Well, for issues involving Marine Corps judge advocates, you've got the uh, staff judge advocate to the commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, for issues involving trial and appellate judges, you've got the chief judge of the Navy. And then for all other issues, uh, the rules council is going to be the AJAG for civil law. And, and so that, that's, that's the 01. Now, what does a rules council do? Um, well, really, you know, they provide advice on the uh, the administration of the rules. They review uh, PR, professional responsibility complaints, and professional responsibility matters as they arise. Uh, they publish opinions of the professional responsibility committee, and uh, they approve or uh, they approve or deny outside uh, practice of law requests. And we'll touch on that subject uh, in a little bit. But the, 
the Jack Horrors, so the Jack Horrors rules, as narrated, are, are, are modeled off of the American Bar Association's model rules. And, and they're kind of divided into six broad sections. And we're not going to go through today and talk about each one of those rules. Uh, I don't think anybody expects, expects an attorney to have uh, the, the rules themselves completely memorized. Uh, they're, I don't know, they're like 180 pages long. Uh, but... We're going to hit on some of the most important rules that uh, judge advocates see on a day-to-day basis, uh, and that really re- span all practice areas uh, that the Jags likely to see during the course of their career. Now, one thing that's worth noting is, so we're going to talk about some of the, the, the major rules, but always keep in the back of your mind that you've got the rules, and then you've got the comments to the rules. So... The, the take-home message here is always read the comment uh, to the relevant rule that you're looking into uh, because the rules are authoritative. The comments are, uh, they, 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 help inter- they, they help provide uh, interpretive guidance to what, is it, what it is that the rule uh, is trying to get across, what, what's the appropriate conduct in any particular situation. So... Any discussion of the rules and individual rules should start with uh, rules 1.1 and 1.3, and those are respectively uh, the rules for competence and the rules for the, the rule for competence, the rules for diligence. Now, the the rule for competence, and, and this is you know it's common sense to a certain degree, and and quite frankly that is the case uh, with these rules of professional conduct. But rule 1.1 competence. Uh, states that a covered attorney shall provide, and here are the operative words, competent, diligent, and prompt representation to a client. Competent representation requires the legal knowledge, skill, access to evidence, thoroughness, and expeditious preparation reasonably necessary for representation. So that's the the rule itself. And then if you go to the comments and you read uh, the comments, uh, they talk about Really, what amounts to a reasonableness standard, and that is, you know, we don't require lawyers to be perfect. Uh, lawyers are human beings, and you know, obviously, perfection uh, is is not always going to be the case. So we don't require that from from a rules perspective. Uh, what we look to is in the question that we ask is: Is a lawyer acting reasonably? Are they reasonably competent? Are they providing reasonable diligence? And reasonableness is, you know, it's the standard that's going to, to take the day. So when it comes to rules 1.1 and 1.3, uh, for, so competence and diligence, really, like, we all hear the phrase, do your due diligence. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of, that, that's, that's the point here is go through, be reasonable in the amount of preparation that you uh, that you undertake uh, in becoming competent in a particular subject matter. Be reasonable in the amount of research that you do in answering a legal question. Be reasonable in the amount of um, you know uh, just of the amount of diligence that you apply. And if you do that, that's a that's a surefire way to stay in compliance with the rules. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? Uh, a great example that we always like to talk about is. Uh, just regulatory compliance. And so that means if you're seeing an issue for the first time or if you're not just completely confident in an issue uh, or or in how to handle an issue, pull a regulation, look it up. Most likely 
whatever the answer is that you're looking for is going to be contained in some regulation somewhere. Uh, you know, depending on the issue, particularly for SJAs, pretending, uh, the issue that you're dealing with is probably going to be contained in a SACNAV instruction or an OFNAV instruction or a DOD instruction. And so pull the instruction, pull the regulation, take a look at it. Uh, that's kind of, you know, that, that's, a, that, that's a, a fundamental tenet of being reasonably competent, being reasonably diligent. Now, okay, rules 1.1, 1.3, they kind of go hand in hand. What else? What else is there out there? Well, rule 1.6 is another rule that we, we see a lot from time to time, uh, and that is confidentiality. And so this applies to all of us because we all have a client, whether your client is a, a defense client or a legal assistance client or the Department of the Navy. Uh, rule 1.6 directs that a covered attorney, so us, shall not reveal information relating to representation of a client unless the client gives informed consent or unless the the, uh, the disclosure is somehow otherwise implied or authorized uh, or, or permitted as uh, as outlined in the rules. So, you know, one of the, the interesting points about this is it, it comes in the comment to the rule, which states that the this confidentiality rule applies to all information relating to representation to the representation, whatever its source. So always keep that in the back of your mind as you're, uh, you know, as you're finding solutions for your client. And, and that is, look, you know, rule 1.6, it doesn't just apply to, to specific information. It applies to all information related to the representation. Now, the rule does have some important ca- carve-outs uh, that allow for disclosure in certain circumstances. We've already talked about, well, okay, if your client provides informed consent, uh, but what if, what if your client doesn't, or what if you just don't have the opportunity uh, to ask them? And so the rules do talk about um, an attorney shall, so this isn't even a may, this is an attorney shall uh, reveal confidential information uh, to prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm. So a good example here is you have a client who is either going to hurt themselves or hurt others, uh, and it, it fits that, that standard, the reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm, then you as the attorney shall uh, reveal confidential information. Another example of when the attorney, you as an attorney, shall prevent uh, or shall reveal confidential information is to prevent a client from committing a criminal act uh, where the significant impairment of national security or readiness or capability of a military unit or a military vessel or aircraft or a military weapon system is involved. So that's a pretty unique set of facts right there uh, and one that is not, you know, fortunately not too common. Now those are both shalls. An attorney shall reveal confidential information. There's another uh, example that the rules uh, talk about where it says that an attorney may reveal confidential information. And that is uh, to get advice on how to comply with the rules. Uh, So this kind of, uh, this is a recurring theme here. uh, And that is you may, as an attorney, reveal information that is otherwise confidential uh, to to seek information or to seek knowledge or guidance on how to best comply, otherwise comply with the PR rules. Now there's some important caveats on that. Uh, you have to keep in the, keep in mind that the information that you reveal that is not uh, you know it's likely especially if you're contacting Code 13 it's not going to be uh, protected information. So when you 
when you, when you reveal information in the back of your mind, always, always think like, okay, how do I do this to the, to the least extent possible? How do I re reveal this information in such a way uh, that I'm only divulging the bare minimum of what is required to seek or seek guidance on how to best comply with the rules. Now, a couple other times when you may reveal confidential information, that would be to establish a claim or defense uh, against, or if you're in a controversy with your client, as well as to comply with a law uh, or with a court order. So, rule 1.6, the take home here is that, and there's, there's discussion in the comments, or there's discussion in the comment to the rule, and that is, you know, this idea of not revealing confidential information is just, it's such a bedrock principle uh, in for the day-to-day -day representation of clients that uh, it's one that, that we take very seriously. And so keep in mind that it applies to all information relating to the representation of your client, whatever its source. So that was rule 1.6. Now, what's uh, the, the, the next rule here, kind of in the the progression of rules is rule 1.7 and that is that that focuses on conflicts of interest and then rule 1.8 rule 1.9 these you've got these other conflict of interest rules uh, but rule 1.7 uh, it, it lays out the, the general conflict of interest rule and really I mean the general rule here is if you've got a concurrent conflict of interest uh, you, you know you shouldn't be taking part in the representation uh, that that involves that concurrent conflict of interest so if you're ever wondering, uh, and I think we all kind of have like an intuitive sense here, okay, well, uh, you know, I wonder if there's a conflict of interest in this matter. Go to the rule. Read the rule. It talks about it. It, it lists specific, uh, specific things that amount to a concurrent conflict of interest. Uh, and one of those can be that you just have some kind of personal interest in the matter that prevents you from engaging in representation. So uh, the rule provides some good guidance the comment to the rule provides some further guidance. And this is one of those rules that you really want to think about and, and kind of analyze in your head prior to the representation, if, if at all possible, so that you can ward off any problems uh, in advance. Now, if you've ever got a question, uh, and this really applies to any of this stuff, but you can always call us at Code 13 and we can, we're happy to talk through an issue with you and, and think it through and try and help you uh, make the right decision. and and uh, you know, in order to best comply with the, with the professional rules. So in the context of conflicts of interest, also do keep in mind that Rule 1.9, which is, you know, it's not Rule 1.7, but Rule 1.9 uh, is a conflict of interest rule that specifically applies to former clients. And really this rule can best be summarized by saying, look, look if you've got a former client, you still owe a duty of, confidentiality to them. You still owe them um, different duties as far as maintaining, being conflict-free with respect to them. So if you're ever in a matter, and this is why it's important to keep in mind, or it's important to keep uh, client logs as well. If you're ever in a situation where you're representing a client or you've got a prospective client, uh, keep in mind that if that current client or the prospective client um, has some kind of conflict with a former client of yours, uh, then you've got a PR issue that you got to resolve. And the the best way to do that, go to the rule, rule, read the rule, think it through, talk with the supervisory attorney, and then you know figure out a course of action. Or if you want to 
just call us at Code 13 again. Uh, we're happy to help you assess the situation. Now, moving on uh, to kind of a rule that's unique to the Navy, and that is uh, Rule 1.13, which is the Department of the Navy as a client. And so, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, if you've got, if you're a defense counsel, your client's going to be, you're, you're going to have defense clients. And if you're a legal assistance attorney, then your client's uh, going to be, you know, your legal assistance clients. But what happens if you don't have, if you fall into this kind of broad category, uh, and, you know, SJAs are a great example of individuals who don't have those other individuals as clients, you know, who is your client? Well, I think we all kind of you know know the answer, uh, but it's sometimes we have to stop and, and really remember it, and that is, well, the Department of the Navy is our client. And so it's always interesting uh, when you're advising your, your, your commander in a particular situation. It's always worth, key, it's always worth reminding them, uh, if, if, if it's necessary, that your client is the Department of the Navy. Your client is not that individual because rule 1.13 says that you are uh that you're to represent the client uh, or represent the department in the navy and that's going to be as as exercised through its um through its officials and so make sure that your commander knows that you're not their personal lawyer uh, you you represent the navy and you know sometimes an attorney or sometimes a commander's interests can quickly diverge from uh, from the interests of the Department of the Navy. And if that happens, you, as the attorney who is employed by the Department of the Navy, uh, you side with the Department of the Navy. So commanders should know that, but sometimes, you know, uh, maybe they don't know that. Maybe they, you know, I guess it can be a little counterintuitive. Uh, but it is sometimes easy to forget that. And so it's one of those fundamental Fundamental things to remind yourself of, uh, and, and help simplify a situation that uh, you know you may get focused on other facts, and it, it may be easy to forget. Oh shoot! Well, who's the client here? Well, the client's the Department of the Navy. So, just keep it simple, uh, and keep that one in, in the back of your mind. So that that was Rule One Point One Three: Department of the Navy as a client. Now we're going to jump a little bit ahead in the rules to Rule Four Point Three, and that is in Rule Four Point Two, for that matter. Uh, those are the two rules that deal with how do you interact with somebody who is represented by counsel, and then how do you represent or how do you interact with somebody who is not represented by counsel. So starting with Rule 4.2, uh, the rule says that when you're representing a client, you shall not. So this you shall you shall not communicate about the subject of the representation with a party that you know to be represented by another attorney in the matter, unless of course the other attorney. Has uh, has given you consent to do so, and so that's this is another one of those ones that just kind of like it's one of these things to kind of over overlook uh, on accident. I would say that of all the rules that gets that get broken, perhaps on accident, this is a good example uh, because you know this is never going to be this is rarely like at the heart of whatever the legal issue. Uh, isn't a matter. Rather, there's going to be some other issue out there. You're going to be so focused, you know, the tendency is to be so focused on resolving whatever that issue is, it's easy to forget, like, before you go back to the individual involved and say, hey, here's the answer to your matter. You know, don't forget, like, oh, you know, 
ask yourself, are they represented by counsel? Is there another attorney who's been involved here? And if that's the case, then you got to go through the other attorney and communicate through the other attorney until they tell you uh, otherwise. So that's rule 4.2, dealing with individuals who are represented by counsel. Rule 4.3, meanwhile, is dealing with people who are not represented by counsel. And so really, the, the heart of this rule is, it's essentially, don't be misleading. Uh, and it's that it says that, look, if you've got a situation where you're talking with somebody and it becomes apparent that they don't realize that you are not disinterested, that's a lot of negatives, uh, but you are not disinterested, you represent the Navy. And so if it becomes apparent to you that they don't understand that, uh, you need to stop them and remind them, hey, don't, you know, I'm not your attorney in this matter. I'm not disinterested in this matter. I represent the Department of the Navy. And so Rule 4.3, it, it focuses on just you know, treating people fairly uh, and making sure that if there's a clear misunderstanding of what's going on, that you stop and uh, you inform the other person that you are an attorney. So for the specific, an attorney for the Navy, for the specific um, specifics on that rule, I would say just you know, go to Rule 4.3, read the comment. It's not real common, uh, but it does pop up from, from time to time. So... Okay, got it. We, we all of these rules kind of apply. We we focus on okay, how does this rule apply to me as the practicing attorney? Uh, but what if you're a supervisor? What are your supervisory responsibilities with respect to other attorneys? And so that's where you, we the, the rules uh, talk about this a little bit in rules five point one and five point three, and that they lay out an attorney, a supervisory attorney's responsibilities with regards to junior attorneys. So subordinate attorneys, and then with regards to non-attorney personnel, so paralegals, legal men. Um, and by the way, the standard for, for non-attorneys, you know, there's a question out there, oh, well, do the rules apply to them? And the rules don't apply per se uh, to, to those in, to non-attorneys, uh, but they do serve as models of, of uh, professional conduct. And so they're definitely informative. Uh, and then also, there's getting back to rules 5.1 and 5.3, you can't use somebody else to do something that would otherwise violate the rules if you did it yourself. Uh, so specifically the rule 5.1, and a supervisory attorney is required to make reasonable efforts to ensure that uh, all covered attorneys and non-attorney assistants conform to the, the professional rules, uh, or the, the PR rules. So you're required to make reasonable efforts. Okay, got it. So let's say you've made reasonable efforts, but you know you're, you find yourself in a factual situation uh, to where somebody, despite your reasonable efforts, perhaps somebody else is violating the rules. So a supervisory attorney, and the rules tell us this, and you know, to what extent I guess the question is, to what extent can you be held responsible for somebody else's conduct? And the rules tell us that a supervisory attorney shall be responsible for a subordinate's conduct uh, if the attorney, either you as the supervisor, orders the conduct uh, or you ratify, knowingly ratify the conduct, or you as the supervisor uh, have direct supervisory authority over an individual you know of the conduct at a time when you could have done something about it to perhaps stop the conduct or, or mitigate the consequences, and you just you know you fail to take some kind of reasonable action. So if that's the case, rules five point one and five point three, 
which really mirror each other, just kind of apply to different people, different sets of people. Uh, they say that, yeah, under certain circumstances, an attorney can be held responsible for the conduct of somebody else. So relatively infrequent, um, but, you know, it does happen from time to time. Uh, and it's one of those things that you want to just do your best. Uh, and this comes back to reasonableness, but do your best to make reasonable efforts uh, to ensure that everybody who's working in your office or the, uh, the attorneys who are working as, as subordinate attorneys for you, um, you know, make sure that they're complying with the rules uh, and, and you shouldn't have any issues. Now, okay, so we're kind of shifting into this topic of rules violations. And, and uh, so that it's a natural segue into rules 8.3 and 8.4. Now, rule 8.4, kind of going in reverse order here, that's just the rule for misconduct. And so rule 8.4 talks about misconduct and says, okay, here are the things that we think are professional misconduct. And that is things like committing a criminal act that reflects adversely on your honesty or trustworthy or fitness to be an attorney or engaging in conduct that involves dishonesty or fraud, deceit, misrepresentation, or engaging in conduct that is just generally speaking prejudicial to the administration of justice. So for stuff like that, um, you know, that can be conduct that is strictly related to you practicing law. It can also be conduct that is just kind of unrelated to the practice of law, uh, at least on its face, uh, but involves just personal misconduct of, uh, you know, of whatever nature, uh, but misconduct that perhaps reflects on, you know, your ones of fitness to be an attorney. So, okay, you got it. Rule, rule 8.4, it kind of lays out this broad misconduct rule. Well, you know, when are we required to do something about it if you know somebody else has actually committed misconduct or if you know that somebody else has violated some other uh, one of the other rules of professional conduct and this is probably is one of the most frequent questions that we get and that is you know people say hey I you know I, I, I think this this particular event has happened or I know this particular event has happened I feel like I'm supposed to do something about it but I really don't know and so people will call us and they'll say, you know, are we supposed to do something about this? And so when that happens, I all, you know, we always point people to Rule 8.3. And so Rule 8.3, it deals with reporting professional misconduct. Now, the rule says, and I'm just going to read it verbatim here. So any attorney having knowledge that another covered attorney has committed a violation of the PR rules... Uh, that raises a substantial question as to that covered attorney's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness as a covered attorney in other respects, shall report the violation. So this goes back to this idea that we are a self-regulating profession uh, and that if we know of stuff that really reflects poorly on an individual that we're required to report that as a rules violation to, uh, to rules counsel. Now, there's an important caveat on all of this. And that is just, it's a, a, plain, a plain meaning reading of, of the language of the rule and then the comment that goes with the rule. Uh, and that, you know, the short of that is that, look, it, we're not talking about just like any potential rules violation. We're talking about rules violations uh, that raise, and you know, back, back in quotes here, a substantial question as to a covered attorney's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness uh, to be, you know, to be be an attorney. And so the comment to the rule actually goes a little bit further and it says that, look, this, I, this concept of a 
reporting requirement is limited to those offenses that a self-regulating profession must vigorously endeavor to prevent. So what, you know, what does that mean? Well, it, it can mean really a whole lot of things. But the point is, you know, the, I guess the, the practice tip that we, that we give out, that we tell people is, look, there's a lot of discretion. If you feel like that you need to report a matter, you have a lot of discretion in the matter uh, as far as assessing whether you, not, whether you think, I guess, assessing the severity of the conduct. And the, the operational terms here are going to be this whole idea of a conduct that raises a substantial question as to a covered attorney's honesty, trustworthiness, or fitness to practice law. So if you ever find yourself, you know, you think somebody may have violated the rules uh, or you know somebody may have violated the rules, go back and you ask yourself, okay, do I think that this raises a substantial question as to that attorneys covered or that covered attorneys honesty trustworthiness or fitness now that's a hard question um, and so the best advice that, that we can give is first of all talk to your supervisory attorney you know they're, they're your supervisory attorney for a matter or the supervisory attorney for, for a reason um, talk to them think the issue through really like sit down and think about it. is this something that we need to formally report that's a code 13 or formally report to one of the other rules council. And we're not saying don't do it. I mean, if it is an issue, if you guys decide, or if you decide it's an issue that you need to report, by all means, report it. Uh, but just know that once you report a matter, uh, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, it starts in, pro it starts in progress a process uh, of, of reviewing the matter. And it doesn't imply any particular type of conclusion about the process, but it's a process. And so that's why the rules talk to this idea of, okay, really think, really parse the language of Rule 8.3 uh, and really make sure that this is the type of conduct that a self-regulating profession must vigorously endeavor to prevent. So let's say you've talked to your supervisory attorney and you, know, you still don't really know, you're kind of on the fence, well, do I report this or not? Uh, if you have additional questions, by all means, you can reach out to Code 13 uh, and we're happy to think the issue through with you. Now, we're, we're going to cite back to the same rule because, like I said, we, you know, that's, that's the governing rule. Uh, and there's really no like, hidden or secret guidance out there on it. Uh, but we're happy to talk through issues. So uh, if you ever if you find yourself in a tough situation where you're debating whether or not you think you need to report something and you've already talked to your supervisory attorney, uh, by all means, you know, reach out and, and we're happy. Give us a call. We're happy to, to talk through the issues. So... Let's, you know, let's say you decide to report something. Okay, what does that do? Well, when any time that there is a report of professional misconduct, uh, it starts in process, you know, that's going to start in progress, a process, and it's the PR complaint process. And all of this specifically is outlined in the JAG Corps PR rules uh, in Enclosure 2 to, to the JAG Instruction. So Enclosure 2 to JAG Instruction 5803.1 ECHO. And it's, I don't know, it's like know, 10 or 15 pages long, and it goes through literally every step of the complaint process. And so it's actually not really that much of a mystery, uh, the process itself. Um, but, okay, well, what, what does the process look like? So, you know, you begin with a formal complaint. And by the way, this process is not identical to processes contained, you know, used by your state bar, I'm guessing, um, or the, the ABA's model rules. 
But it's this all kind of model on, on very similar processes. And our process is pretty similar to the ABA's process. And really, it comes back to just general due process, you know, think, et cetera, things like that. But so you've got a formal complaint out there, okay? Somebody has alleged that somebody else has violated the rules of professional conduct. Okay, well, there's a number of steps and there's a number of questions that get asked. And so the first question is whether or not we think uh, that the complaint itself uh, establishes that there may be probable cause to believe the rules have been violated. If the answer to that is no, uh, then rules counsel can close out the matter uh, right then and there. And so the, 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 the official making these decisions at this point in the process is the rules counsel. So then, okay, we well, got it. Well, let's say rules counsel de- decides that there may be probable cause. So what's the next step in the process? Well, the next step in the process is to send out a copy of the complaint to the complaint of attorney and ask for notice and comment. So, you know, that's, you're always going to get a chance to tell your side of the story. Uh, if if this if the complaint goes anywhere, and so rest assured that there's there's never going to be a situation where you just you don't get to provide input and say hey no 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 this is my side of the story and this is what happened, so rules counsel uh, you know sends out, sends the complaint out for notice and comment, you provide notice and comment as the complaint of attorney, uh, and then the that all that gets packaged up together and then it goes to the rules counsel for for a determination of whether or not there is probable cause to believe the rules have been violated. Now that we've heard both sides of the story, if that's the case, if rules counsel determines, uh, yes, there is probable cause, um, then the follow-on question is, okay, well, is that probable cause of a minor, or would, would the violation be of a minor or technical nature appropriately addressed through counseling? So the answer to that is yes, and rules counsel can close the matter uh, by providing counseling, and, and that's it. If rules counsel says, uh, no, it's, you know, there's probable cause here to believe a rules violation has occurred uh, and, uh, you know, it's just not minor or technical in nature, then the next step in the process is a more formal ethics investigation where an in, a, a judge advocate will get appointed as an ethics investigator and then you go through a process that's somewhat similar to, like a, to a, a JAGMAN investigation um, looking into the issue. And, oh, by the way, this is kind of taking a step backwards, but after the notice and comment period, if rules counsel says, yep, got it, heard both sides of the stories, there's no probable cause here, uh, then rules counsel can just close the matter, and and that's that. So moving back ahead in our process, okay, so rules counsel has determined that an ethics investigation is warranted. Uh, The ethics investigation takes place. After all the facts and all the information has been collected, you know, rules council then kind of goes through a similar decision-making uh, tree and decides, okay, well, you know, what's the path forward here? And ultimately, rules council at that point, uh, if you if he desires, uh, can forward the matter uh, to the judge advocate general and recommend disciplinary action. So, and an important caveat on all this too is that once a matter goes to an ethics investigation the evidentiary standard shifts pretty dramatically from just probable cause to believe a rules violation has occurred to clear and convincing evidence that a rules violation has occurred. So if you have an ethics investigation, then rules counsel establish, you know, b- believes there's clear and convincing evidence forwards the matter to the JAG. JAG can take disciplinary action and, you know, well, okay, well, what does disciplinary action mean? Well, JAG can really take any action. 
Uh, so potential final action in any PR matter would be nothing. Uh, that's definitely an option. Uh, it could be corrective counseling and closing the matter. It could be a temporary suspension of somebody's ability to practice law. It could be to require extra training. It could be some kind of interim suspension. Uh, it could be, uh, and, in, and then I guess the, 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 the most severe uh, route would be an indefinite suspension or a permanent revocation or decertification under Article 27 Bravo. Uh, it's a really to practice law in the Navy. And so those are all potential outcomes uh, once you make it through every step of the PR complaint process. It's not a quick process. It's very deliberate, uh, but it's designed that way. Uh, it, it's designed to be deliberate because you, know, you want to make sure that you're hearing all sides of a story. You want to make sure that uh, the evidence supports whatever action is being taken in a particular matter. Uh, and if the evidence isn't there, then you want to make sure that you close the matter out uh, and, and that you end it there. So that is, broadly speaking, the PR complaint process. And you, like I said, it's contained in Enclosure 2 of the JAG Corps PR rules or JAG Instruction 5803.1 ECHO. And so if you ever have a question or, you know, if somebody files a complaint against you, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong uh, by any means. Um, it just means somebody's filed a complaint and it may have merit, it may not have merit. But if you want to know more about the process, just pull the instruction, take a look at it. And, uh, you know, it's pretty interesting and it, it's pretty common sense. It makes, it makes sense. Now, having said all this and, you know, talked about specific rules and talked about the process, you know, where... You, where do you go for help when you're just doing your day-to-day -day job? Uh, where, where do you go for help if you want to, you know, trying to comply with the rules? Well, first of all, read the rules. Uh, read the PR rules. That's, uh, yeah, it's such a fundamental thing that, you know, sometimes we just forget to do it. Uh, so, so pull the rules. They're, they're on the JAGHORS website, um, but, uh, you know, I'd recommend keeping a copy of them at your desk and, and, and train to them and, and you start seeing patterns, you know, the same rules kind of reemerge over and over and over again. We, we, that's why we've kind of talked about them today. But read the rules. Okay, well, if that doesn't work, uh, or if you just want to, you know, further discuss it, uh, consult your supervisory attorneys. You know, they've got, they are in a position to help you comply with the rules. Well, in addition to consulting your supervisory attorney, if you still, you know, you just don't have an answer on a matter, then reach out to one of the informal ethics advisors as outlined, that, that are outlined in the JAG Corps PR rules. And they're in there. Um, and, it's, and this is one of those things that it's easy, or a lot of people just don't know that, that the rules say this, but for specific subject matter areas, the rules say, hey, so-and-so individual is actually the informal ethics advisor for this particular set of issues. So we're talking about uh, Code 20 for criminal law matters, or OJAG Code 16 for legal assistance matters, or DCAP, or TCAP, uh, or uh, Deputy Cause VLC, uh, or the Deputy SJA to the Commandant. Uh, and so once you go through this list, down at the very bottom it says, you know, the professional responsibility coordinator at OJAG Code 13 kind of for, for all other issues. So it's this catch-all to make sure that there's always somebody that you can reach out to. So you can always reach out to us uh, if it's an obvious situation where we, you know, it's an obvious legal assistance issue. We may say, hey, have you talked with Code 16 about this? They're probably better positioned to answer your question 
than we are. But we're, you know, we're always willing to to help either point you in the right direction uh, or just kind of share our thoughts and talk through the issue and think through the issue. Because, you know, some of these issues are easy, but some of them aren't. Some of them are hard. Uh, and so we recognize that. And, you know, everybody wants to get them right. And so we're, we're happy to try and to, to help you think through issues. And so kind of coming full circle here on one of the issues that we talked about earlier, as you reach out to individuals and you ask questions about, hey, what do I need to do to comply with the rules or how, how do you think I should proceed? Just keep in mind rule 1.6 in confidentiality, which specifically talks about not disclosing confidential information. However, there's that carve out. So read the carve out, read the exception that talks about complying with the rules and just keep in mind that you want to reveal as little information as humanly possible uh, to, to kind of convey the situation to, in order to, to seek advice about the rules. And, and that, again, we're really coming full circle because it just goes back to reasonableness. And really with, with the Jack or PR rules, so often the answer is just be reasonable. Uh, use a re- in the reasonable, like an objective reasonableness standard will govern uh, so many of the things that we do. So with all of that said, uh, well, I, I guess there's, there's one other issue. Uh, and just, just store this away in the back of your mind, uh, particularly if you're thinking about getting out of the Navy. But that is uh, the outside practice of law. So this is like, it's just, it's, it's its own island of an issue. The outside practice of law, which all this is governed in enclosure three of the JAGCOR rules or the PR rules. And uh, the outside practice of law, in order to engage in the outside practice of law, we as attorneys have to request permission if we're still on active duty uh, or even if we're getting off active duty, uh, but we're still on terminal leave. Uh, you have to request permission. It's a relatively simple process and it's not it's not arduous. It's not meant to make life difficult, but uh, just keep that in the back of your mind that, okay, if I want to do something like pro bono work, for example, or if I'm getting off active duty and I want to, and I'm going to take a new job that involves me working before my terminal leave is over, working as an attorney, just keep in mind, like, you got to request permission uh, to, uh, to, to engage in that, in that kind of practice of law. So to do so, just the, the template for doing so is in enclosure three of the JAG Corp PR rules. And so my recommendation would be reach out to us, happy to talk through the issue uh, and, and just kind of remind you like, hey, you know, check out enclosure three of the rules or just go straight to enclosure three, fill it out, get your chain of command to endorse it and send it on up and we'll turn it around as fast as, uh, as, fast as we can. So that is an overview of the Navy JAG Corps PR processes. It's an overview of the rules that we see most frequently. Uh, but, you know, just you know, try and do the right thing. Try and be reasonable in everything that you do. And if you have any questions, talk with your supervisory attorney and consult the rules. And if, if that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't get you to where you need to be, uh, give us a call. We're happy to, to help you uh, further, you know, think about issues. We're happy to talk through how we think you should think about issues, how we kind of think about issues at Code 13. And work to get you a solution that allows you to move forward and assist your client uh, while being compliant with the rules. So thank you very much for listening in today. We really appreciate it. It's an important topic and it's one that we are uh, always glad to talk about. So if you ever have questions, please give us a call. Aside from that, have a great day. You have been listening to JAG Talk, 
a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Visit jag.navy.mil for additional chapters of this podcast series. Thank you for tuning in.